Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Ask Abhijit. Today we talk about science. So let us see, before we begin, who all is there with us. I can see Nirmit, Upanishad, Komal, Karan, Durga, Geetesh, Hari Priya, Prashant, Prasad, Yash, Phoenix, Lucifer, Akul, Apishek, Kamleshwar, Purobinath, Bonfire, Pratik, SJRIKK, Modi G, Amar, Bimla, Swapnil, Mohit, Kabir, Trupti, Vladimir Adityanath, Om, Vishal, Anirudh, Sneha, Suraj, Mohyal, Asminor, Akhilesh, and lots of other people. Swadesh, Karki, Prince, Manish, Shiva, Rajput, Gorang, etc. Aditi, Swapna, Darna, Ranu, and everybody else. Good evening, good day, and welcome to this latest episode of, of Ask Abhijit. So, let us get into the questions, and today we are discussing science, obviously. So, what's question number one for today? Question number one is by two people, Vishal and Sayan. Is it true that in the future we're going to use small satellite launch vehicle and nano satellite launch vehicle rather than PSLV and GSLV? How would SSLV and NSLV be more helpful? And what do you think of the recent SSLV launch and its failure in the terminal stage? How is ISRO going to benefit from a successful SSLV? So the SSLV is the small satellite launch vehicle. It's a new rocket that ISRO has developed. And it's, uh, well, strangely enough, they've developed a new small rocket. Typically, one would expect that when you are developing new rockets, you would develop more powerful rockets, bigger rockets, rockets that can launch a greater payload into further and further orbits. But ISRO seems to be going in the opposite direction. We are developing smaller rockets, apparently. And uh, so uh, what's the rationale behind uh, developing a smaller rocket, a small satellite launch vehicle? I'm not sure if there is an NSLV in the in the works. If, if there is, then okay. So why would one build a smaller rocket, develop a smaller rocket? It's like this. You have the PSL with the polar satellite launch vehicle and the GSL with the geostationary satellite launch vehicle. These rockets are much more powerful than the SSLV. So let's say you want to launch a bunch of small satellites. Nowadays, we can launch multiple satellites on a single rockets, rocket. It's the same, essentially the same technology as MIRV technology, multiple independently re reusable uh, vehicles. Right, right. That is, that is uh, ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons, but uh, it's essentially the same technology. So let's say you want to launch a bunch of nanosatellites one kilogram in, in, in mass, or maybe small satellites like 50 kilograms, 100 kilograms each. And you want, to, you want to launch three or five of these. So the total payload is about, if it's a small satellite, it's about 500 kilos. What's the point of launching a massive rocket to carry a small payload? A single rocket launch when it comes to the GSLV or the PSLV, uh, would cost maybe tens of crores of rupees, maybe hundreds of crores of rupees. The GSLV is a much more massive rocket, so that uh, a launch of the GSLV would cost much more than a launch of the PSLV. Now, if you want to launch small satellites, you want a smaller rocket, a more efficient rocket, and a rocket that will cost less, right? So as to optimize the costs for per satellite. Essentially, you want to bring the cost 
per kilogram as low as possible. And that is essentially the rationale, the reason behind developing a new rocket that is dedicated to launching small satellites and possibly nanosatellites. Right? So that is the reason why this has been done. It is a purely commercial thing. The reason is purely commercial. ISRO wants to uh, acquire a bigger share of the satellite launch market. Yes. Uh, ISRO will essentially uh, serve as a taxi driver for various clients and launch their satellites into orbit. I'm not saying it in any kind of derogatory fashion. This is a viable business model. And yes, why not make some money, right? If you have the technology for doing that. So uh, lots of countries, lots of private companies worldwide need a satellite in position in space to, to do various tasks. Yeah. And therefore, therefore, there is there is a growing market. There's a growing demand for launching small satellites. Nowadays, you have these CubeSats, NanoSats, very small satellites that pack a lot of electronics into a small volume, and they can do uh, whatever is required for a certain kind of purpose, right? So these days, you don't have to launch massive, bulky satellites. Nations need to do that, but but small nations and small companies or large companies don't need to launch massive, multi-ton satellites. So for that, it is it makes sense to develop a smaller rocket. And that is what the SSLV is, the Small Satellite Launch Vehicle. And maybe an NSLV, I'm not sure if that is also in, in the works, but yeah. So that is the reason why this has been developed. It doesn't mean that the PSLV is going to be shelved or the GSLV is going to be shelved. When India uh, starts its uh, human space, space flight program, you can't do that with a small rocket. Right, you're gonna be launching a capsule that contains that, that would carry maybe three three astronauts. Yeah, that's uh, that would that's a large capsule that would uh, its weight would be significantly large. Definitely, most likely over a ton. So you can't launch that sort of capsule on a small satellite launch vehicle. You need ideally the GSLV for that. So there are various versions of the GSLV also that are in existence that have been developed and there is still i believe a work in progress yeah so the gslv is not going to be shelved neither is the pslv the sslv and the nslv are for a certain kind of launch a niche market that's all it is now what do i think of the failure well typically when you are developing a new new technology there is a process of trial and error uh, the, this uh, launch that happened recently was a developmental launch that's how it's been uh, that's how it has been portrayed. It's, it was a developmental launch. So when you see, if you look at the history of the American space program or the Russian space program in the 1950s and 1960s, you will see so many failures, so many rockets that failed to take off, that exploded on the launch pad, or they took off and they missed the target completely. Right? Initially, the, the success rate was about 20 or 30% the first few years. Right? And then over time, they figured out what works and what doesn't work. And then they were able to improve the performance of the rockets. And that's what happened. So there's always a process of trial and error. So this particular SSLV launch did not perform as, as planned. I think there was a problem in the terminal stage. It was able to deploy the satellites, but they were deployed in an incorrect orbit. And that's why they are not quite usable. That's what happened. So what will happen now is that they will figure out what went wrong, what is the cause of this failure, what are the 
what exactly went wrong. They will have the data, the telemetrics and all that. And they will identify the problem areas and they will rectify it. And I hope that this is tested again soon, not six months or 12 months in the future. The problem with ISRO, I, I always observe this, it's because of a lack of budget, I, I think. When something doesn't work well, they wait two, three, four years to try it out again. Talk about the obvious example is Chandrayaan 2. Chandrayaan 1 worked well. Chandrayaan 2 was a partial success, almost like 90% success. The, the lander crashed on the surface of the moon. I was hoping they would send a next mission within six months. But we're still waiting for it. This thing happened in 2019. So it's certainly due to a budgetary constraints that's that's the that's the reason why it takes so long for them to try it again you give them enough money they're going to see when you have engineers who are working on technology they want to test it out rapidly right that's that's what makes sense if you look at the, the way spacex uh, operates they test things very rapidly there are lots of tests over a period of months and even if you look at uh, Blue Origin, they have conducted hundreds of tests of various uh, components of the rocket system, uh, the uh, and so on, right? The capsule that contains the human beings that, that takes them to space and all that. They have conducted hundreds of tests. In the case of ISRO, it's one test in three, four years. It's because of budget constraints. So it is, it's okay, it's fine to fail, but you've got to iteratively improve upon what went wrong and you need to do it rapidly. So I hope I would like to see the next uh, launch of the SSLV within a couple of months. And hopefully this time they, they rectify the problem. I don't think that's going to happen in the next two, three months, but that's how it should be. So the only disappointment I feel is that there is a budgetary constraint and the, the engineers are not able to... Uh, to test out new technologies as rapidly as they would like to. Ideally, I would like to see a SSLV launch once in in a in a month, and after a few launches, you've perfected the technology. So you launch once a month and you do it for six months, then you've perfected the technology. But if you if you test once in six months, it's problematic, and you know the improvements are very small and very slow. So that is the only issue with this. Otherwise, there are a bunch of brilliant scientists and engineers. So yeah, that's about this. <laughs> Jay says, what is the role of cockroaches <laughs> on the Earth's ecosystem? What will happen if one day all the cockroaches go extinct from the Earth? Are they important in the Earth's ecosystem? <laughs> cockroaches, yes, cockroaches, cockroaches. So cockroaches are a species of um, insect, yes, insects. There are various species or subspecies of cockroach. I think there are different species. There is the Chinese cockroach, the American cockroach, the Indian cockroach. There are small ones, large ones, different colors, dark colored ones, light colored ones, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Orange cockroaches, I believe, and then uh, your standard reddish brown cockroach, and so on and so forth. Very interesting uh, insect. Yeah. So what is the role in the Earth's ecosystem? Cockroaches. Look, every species that inhabits the earth has a certain role to play in the ecosystem. The ecosystem is essentially in a way like a living organism. It's, it exists in a state of equilibrium, homeostasis. So all the different species, they perform 
specific rules in the ecosystem. And it is this combination of millions of species performing various rules that keeps the ecosystem in balance. So what about cockroaches? What do they do? Cockroaches are reasonably abundant in the world. They seem to like living with human beings, right? So it's always a problem for people who don't keep their residences very clean or whatever. Or sometimes even if you keep it clean, they're still around, right? Cockroaches. So the thing is this. Cockroaches, first of all, they serve as prey for other species of, of uh, animals or insects. Uh, I've seen cats hunting cockroaches and eating them with great relish. Meow, meow. Yeah, cats like cockroaches apparently. And... Uh, other species of, of maybe birds, etc., would also prey on cockroaches and eat them. So the cockroaches are a good source of nutrition for many other species of, of rodents, of mammals, cats, birds, etc. They're a good source of nutrition, a good source of protein for these species. Secondly, uh, cockroaches, uh, they, they, what they do is they eat uh, organic material and they accelerate the decomposition process of this organic material. So when there is a piece of food, let's say a piece of bread lying on the floor or, or, or somewhere else, cockroaches would go and eat that and, and uh, decompose it rapidly to simpler organic material that can then go back into the earth and, and enrich the, the fertility of the soil and all that, you know. So these are the kind of rules that an insect like a cockroach would play. And I'm sure they also prey on other smaller insects. So that's they, they, they serve as prey and they also serve as predators. So there's always this sort of balance, you know, big fish eating small fish, that sort of thing. So I am not an expert in cockroaches, but that's the general answer I can give you. This applies to all species of insects, animals, birds, fish, etc., on the planet, they serve multiple purposes. And uh, and what if cockroaches went extinct? So if you were to suddenly snap your fingers and make them all extinct, there would be a sudden imbalance in the ecosystem and that would persist for, I don't know, years, decades possibly, when the, the role they were fulfilling, cockroaches were fulfilling in the ecosystem suddenly disappears. There's a big hole. And then the ecosystem would have to rebalance itself and... Uh, yeah, there would be some consequences. Maybe there will be an explosion of certain kinds of insect species that were being preyed upon by cockroaches. And maybe there will be an extinction possibly of certain animal species or insect species that primarily dependent depended on cockroaches for food. So there could be that sort of imbalance. Yeah. So I think all species have their own significance and importance in the overall ecosystem of the earth. And if you make any any species extinct there's gonna be a certain imbalance yeah so in evolution species go extinct all the time new species emerge all the time but it happens over long time periods so there is no sudden impact on the environment but if cockroaches were to go extinct one day like you say that would cause a an inequilibrium you know, in the environment. And that would be problematic. So that could cause such consequences like I just mentioned. So that, in brief, is about cockroaches. Shaheen Wahman Zadegan says, what is ball lightning? 
yeah it's it's a very poorly understood phenomenon ball lightning so this some people say it's it's superstition or something but it's definitely not so uh people have reported these phenomena for centuries for millennia and uh, recently they have even been caught on cctv camera etc so what is this it's it's a ball of light maybe it's it's a ball of glowing gas possibly or maybe it's an electrical phenomenon it's typically 10 to 20 cm in diameter maybe somewhat sometimes it's larger in, in even rarer cases and it glows it pulsates and it wanders around at approximately human head height yeah not always but sometimes and it wanders around at at walking pace and uh, sometimes it it disappears in an explosive discharge sometimes it just fizzles out so le- let's take a look at what this actually looks like let me let me try and put that on the screen ball lightning let's see what that looks like i'm sure there are images of that available let's look at ball lightning let's do a google search so what does ball lightning look like let's see some so so these are certain uh, they've taken i mean some of these phenomena have been captured essentially on cctv mostly on cctv cameras it's not always ball like but this this one here as you can see looks like a ball there you are something that looks like this sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's high in the sky sometimes it's a lightning strike that creates this ball like thing yeah there's another example so this is typically what ball lightning looks like it comes in various shapes and sizes in various colors sometimes it's reddish sometimes it's yellowish sometimes it's bluish those seem to be the most common colors for ball lightning and uh, yeah it's not very well understood it certainly is something that exists it is not it's not a myth yeah it's been captured multiple times on cctv cameras but it seems to be an extremely rare phenomenon and when something is so rare it's really difficult to replicate that and you know as an experimental physicist so if you don't know how something happens you don't know how to replicate it and if you don't know how to replicate it you don't you don't quite get to understand or figure out what is the physics behind that right what causes this phenomenon so that is the reason why this phenomenon is extremely poorly understood it's not been uh, replicated as far as i know in any lab and there are various hypotheses as to why this happens maybe it's a it's a glowing discharge of electricity of some kind or maybe it is a glowing uh, gas that uh, sometimes what happens is in marshy environments you have natural emission of gases from decomposition of of uh, of various organic substances underwater and you have the emission of gases like methane etc and these are flammable gases so sometimes it could happen that that causes this sort of phenomenon possibly that's one hypothesis that's one theory uh, and uh, there could be uh, electromagnetic effects also possibly behind this so we don't we're not quite sure but that in brief is what ball lightning is it's a very poorly understood phenomenon but it's a phenomenon that definitely does happen swapnil says what caused the planets in the solar system to orbit the sun in an anti clockwise manner and not clockwise how would the earth have been different if its revolution around the clock around the sun was clockwise Look, 
what do we mean by clockwise or anti-clockwise? It all depends on where we are. If I if I have a clock here in front of my face over here, yeah, it's going in a clockwise fashion. But if I was on the other side, it would seem to go in an anti-clockwise fashion, right? So when you have a solar, a stellar system with a star and planets, typically all the planets revolve in a certain direction. If you see it from one orientation, they will seem to be clockwise. If you see it from the other orientation, from the other side of the disk, they will seem to be anti-clockwise. So whether it's clockwise or anti-clockwise depends on where you are looking at, looking at the place, the thing from. That's it. That's what it is, right? So uh, there's no way of saying what is the orientation. Is it clockwise? It is, an, is it anti-clockwise? It doesn't matter. If you see it from above, let's say above, if there is there is no up or down in space first of all so if you if so let me show you what a stellar disk looks like one second um let's see what this is so uh let me put that on the screen here we are so the solar system formed for something that looks like this a protostellar or proto protoplanetary disk so this happened so, so where did all this gas come from? This gas that eventually formed the sun and the planets, it came from the death of a previous star, a star that existed in this region previously. And it most likely went supernova. It exploded in the end stage of its life. And the gas was present and eventually it again coalesced. Uh, there are various uh, star-forming regions in various galaxies where you have a lot of gas and that accretes together and eventually forms this sort of thing. So the thing about gravity is that when you have a gravitating mass of, let's say, gas, it will have a center of gravity where that's the center of gravity, right? At the very center of this, uh, of this object or this region. And when you have a center of gravity, all the other particles of gas and dust and whatever else will be attracted towards that. But the velocities will be such that the direction of the, of the, motion of these gas molecules etc will not be directly uh, towards the center of the center of gravity of the mass and that is what causes the rotational motion right the entire protoplanetary or protocellular disk will have a rotational motion and that is what gives rise to the 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 fact that planets orbit around their their parent star and that is also what causes the rotation of planets so that is what happens and uh, they will the planets will orbit around the sun or the star and if you look at it from one one direction they will seem to be doing it clockwise if you see it from the other direction they will seem to be doing it anti clockwise so i don't know whether the earth is orbiting the sun clockwise or anti clockwise it is doing it both ways depending on where you're looking so that is the answer Okay, RTK says, why is there such a huge difference between humans and the species closest to humans? What led to the rapid increment of the personality of Homo sapiens? Well, I can uh, certainly tell you, agree that Homo sapiens has a wonderful personality. We all have incredibly great personalities. I mean, look at our closest relatives, chimpanzees, gorillas, langurs, orangutans. Their personalities aren't that great compared to ours. I mean, we can do things that they can't. But on the other hand, they can do things that we can't. 
the only difference between us and them essentially is the level of intelligence. We have gone way beyond them. But if you look at the DNA, then the DNA, the difference in DNA between me and a chimpanzee, let's say, would be about 1% or maximum 2%, somewhere between 1% and 2%. So the difference in the genetics is actually quite minimal, minimal. And yet it is that 1% or 2% difference in the genetics, in the, in the genetic code, that makes us so different, right? But are we really that different from our closest uh, relatives, the chimpanzees, the gorillas, orangutans, and the bonobos, etc. We, morphologically, we are quite similar. We are not as powerfully built or physically strong as them. We are quite weak and puny. But morphologically, we are very similar to monkeys. Apes, especially. Yes? Uh, so, I would not quite know if we have such a huge difference between us and them. Even if you look at various other species or families of species, let's say you look at the cats. You have your regular standard issue house cat, you know, the domestic cat that lives with humans. And then you have other species of cats. You have the caracal, you have the lynx, you have the puma, and then you have larger cats like the jaguar or the leopard or the cheetah or the lion or the tiger and so on. And you have various other extinct species of cats like the saber-toothed tiger and all that. I'm sure there is a significant amount of 1 or 2% like difference in the genetic code in all these various species of cats. And yet they have so much difference morphologically, physically, especially from the size perspective. They look quite similar. If you were to take a standard issue house cat, cat and uh, magnify it by a factor of 10, it would look very similar to a tiger. It's built and designed the same way. It's just that there are certain genetic changes that have caused its, its size to be what it is. So it's all because of the game of evolution. Species diverge from time to time. So the, the last divergence between us and our closest relative, the chimpanzee, happened about 2 million years before today. That's 20, what is 2 million? That's 20 lakh, right? 20 lakh in Indian terms. Yeah. So about 2 million years ago, our species diverged from that of the of the of our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, and because of various reasons. We're not quite sure what the reasons are. Maybe the formation of the Rift Valley, people have postulated that could be the reason uh, maybe two population groups became isolated from each other because of various reasons and they never were able to intermingle for millions of for like more than a million years and that's why the divergence of species happened and then when you are living in different environments you evolve differently so that is how it happens that is how the divergence of species happens uh, about six or so million years before today the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees diverged from the common ancestor of humans, chimpanzees, and gorillas. And even, even then, there is a great deal of similarity between us, humans, and our gorilla relatives. They're also quite uh, similar to us in a variety of ways. They are like massively muscular versions of humans, right? And so on. But they look quite similar to us in, in a variety of ways. So it is all because of uh, evolution, you live in different environments, you're going to evolve differently. You have to adapt to the environment. And it's sometimes uh, 
a question of random mutations that happen in DNA, but only those that are beneficial survive long term because of uh, natural selection and so on. So that is what happened. That is how it happens. I would not say that there was a rapid increment in the personality of Homo sapiens. I am sure that our magnificent personalities developed over about 2 million years. And in the future, maybe we will be even better. But right now, I think our personalities are reasonably good. Yeah. Okay, Shubha says, is the metaverse really going to be developed further or is it a concept with a lot of loopholes? We just spoke about evolution. Evolution happens in technology as well, in business as well. Technology evolves because of financial considerations, especially in a capitalist world such as the world we live in. right? So companies corporations develop technology with the singular purpose of enriching themselves. They want to make money. They want to make their shareholders money and they want to make their, essentially the shareholders, right? The shareholders are the people who own stakes in the company, shares of the company. And the more the, com- the company makes money, the, the more, the richer the shareholders become. So that is the primary purpose. And how do you do that? How do you make your shareholders rich by providing a certain kind of value to the public. The public needs something or wants something or has a certain problem and you provide solutions to that and then the public will give you money in return for that. That's how you make money in any business. And sometimes you create solutions to problems that don't exist. Or maybe sometimes you create things that uh, that addict your customers or hook them into this dopamine release uh, uh, cycle, right? You you hook them to pleasurable things. Drug dealers do that. They sell drugs to their customers and the customers get hooked to that. They get addicted and they need more and more of that. And you can charge a lot of money for such drugs. Similarly, certain technology like uh, certain technologies could be like that. I'm not saying all are like that, but some some could be like that. So um, what is this metaverse? The metaverse is going to be, it's it's kind of somewhat here, but not quite. In the future, what you're going to have is all surfaces will be, will be uh, all surfaces around you, let's say walls, would be like laptop screens. You'd be able to watch a movie on your wall on demand and there would be elements of augmented reality. You wear glasses and through those glasses you will see metadata all around you. So you're walking on the street wearing glasses and every single person that comes in front of you, you will see certain data for that person. This person's name is this, born on so and so date. This is their financial value right now and so on and so forth depending on the level of access that you have. So if you are a government agent working for the government with a certain level of clearance, you will see their entire life history displayed in brief. And that could help you identify suspects or whatever. Similarly, you could play virtual real or augmented reality games like the Pikachu thing that was a big craze. It's going to be taken to the next level eventually. So right now what's happening is that the virtual reality headsets or augmented reality headsets are quite bulky, right? In the future, the technology will be developed further, maybe in the next five to 10 years maximum. And you will have your regular glasses that will give you the same effect. In the future, you may not even need glasses. You may have contact lenses that would do the same thing. And further down the line, 
you will have brain implants that will give you pleasure on demand or, or, or augmented reality on demand and so on and so forth. So that is the metaverse. It's going to add layers of, of reality on top of the actual reality we live in. Right? And uh, the hope for these companies, see, these are all American companies that are doing this. Yeah, They hope that uh, the entire world will be hooked into this. They wish to create entirely virtual worlds and universes for people to inhabit. Um, you already have such environments. There, there's this game called Roblox. It's a platform on which uh, there are like a billion plus users, mostly kids, teenagers, and even, even younger kids who spend hours every day playing the game. And there are various other environments, environments as well. The hope is that you will be able to bring these into the real world and merge the two things. So virtual reality, reality and actual reality will be merged. And it will also have some actual benefits, like you'll be able to learn things faster. You may be able to sit at home and yet be in school or sit at home in your bedroom and actually be at the same time in your office, in the company of your colleagues and so on and so forth. This is going to happen. There is a significant, massive push you know, to, to make this a reality. And there's a lot of money in that. If you are a company that offers your customers this sort of thing, then yeah, you're going to make a lot of money for sure. And that's why Facebook has renamed itself to Meta. And so it's a bunch of American companies, Silicon Valley-based companies, that are trying to change the entire reality that we all live in. Right, And it's going to end up benefiting them. It's going to end up benefiting their customers. And the demographic they are targeting is the youngsters, the Generation Z, the Zoomers, and even, even younger kids. That's whom they want to hook into this. So, because in, in 10 years, Gen Z kids will be young adults. And if you have hooked them into this at a young age, then they will be your lifelong customers. And there's a lot of money you can make out of each of, the, each, each of them. So that's the kind of thing it is. Uh, I don't know what loopholes it has, but yes, there are drawbacks. Uh, it is it is not all going to be great for us. You could have kids sitting on a mattress in a dark bedroom, no lights, and they are wearing a headset, augmented reality or virtual reality headset, and they imagine they are superheroes and they are doing conquering the world and all that. In reality. They are sitting in a dark corner of a dark room on a mattress with no physical activity, just hooked into this uh, virtual pleasurable universe. And it's not good for anybody for this sort of thing to happen. But yes, that is something that we, we are going down that alley right now. It's not all good for us. Technology is always a double-edged sword. You can use it for good, you can use it for bad. You can use fire to do good things, you can use fire to do bad things. You can use sticks and stones to good to do good things and bad things. You can use nuclear power to, go, to do good things for humanity and you can also destroy humanity with it. Similarly, all these technologies also have dual use, multiple uses. And uh, generally, if you want to make a lot of money, you sometimes lead people down the wrong road and that's how it works yeah so that is the deal with the metaverse i'm not sure it's all good for humanity and uh, it could also end up uh, transgressing on national security national borders all that because the internet doesn't know any borders yeah and so if you are a company that 
essentially is the platform for the whole world. You can set the rules and you can disregard the laws and norms that are in place in various countries. You decide what it's going to be like and everybody has to obey you. So these are problems that are going to emerge. And the, the nations that control this technology are going to essentially rule the world. So that is the crossroads that we are at right now. That is what the metaverse is. It's it's not one thing. You can, in the past, they used the term cyberspace. Today, we have replaced that with the term metaverse. It's essentially the same thing. It is essentially the same thing. It's just the next level of cyberspace. More and more immersive. Then you will have metaverse 2.0, 3.0, maybe by 2050 or something, in which you will be completely immersed in these uh, in these. Uh, virtual environments. So that is what the metaverse is. Okay, the, I'm not sure what the name is. I can't read that. But uh, the question is the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in a recent study suggested that the combined effects of natural and man-made emissions-based global warming can delay the next ice age by 100,000 years. Whereas other celestial phenomena, change in orbit, axial tilt, precession, etc., will continue as before, obviously. Uh, the average interstitial glacial period is about 10 to 11,000 years, and we are nearing the end of this period. What will be the possible changes that the Earth encounters next? Okay, good question. So there are a number of factors uh, that uh, cause the cycle of ice ages. You have, like you said, the 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 change, it's not the change in orbit, it's the eccentricity of the orbit, which kind of changes over time, yeah? It's a cyclical thing. Then you have the axial tilt, that also changes the Earth. Is The axis of the rotation of the Earth is tilted compared to the plane of the solar system. There's a tilt, and this tilt also changes. That, that takes several thousand years. The axial tilt, and then you have the rate of precession. So the precession happens, and there also has an effect on... The climate of the earth. So if you take these various factors into account, you have what is called the Milkanovich cycles. So there was this uh, scientist called Milkanovich. That's the name I remember. I don't know the first name. So he, I think it was a he. So he calculated that uh, I think it was 41,000 years. So according to his calculations, there should be an ice age every 41,000 years or the cycle should last 41,000 years. And that apparently indeed was, was uh, detected to be correct. But then there was a problem of the 100,000 year cycle, like you're mentioning here. So that is the 100,000 year issue or problem or something they call it. So instead of 41,000 years, it's, it's a cycle of about 100,000 years. And like you mentioned, the interstitial glacial period means the, the time period between ice ages is about 10 to 11 to 12,000 years. And we are nearing the end of that, which means that maybe in a few centuries, maybe in a thousand or 2000 years, we could, be, we could be entering a new ice age or we should be about to enter a new ice age. And yet now we have this issue of global warming. Yes. And that's what the question is about. So uh, I have not seen this uh, study that you're mentioning, but we certainly know that there is this issue of man-made emissions, the carbon that is being released into the atmosphere, into the environment, right? And that is at, I believe, a significant high right now. And that is causing the greenhouse effect, the global warming. And by the end of the century, it is believed that the 
average temperatures on the planet will rise by about 2 degrees maybe 3 degrees i hope not 3 but definitely 2 degrees which is a significant increase right so what is going to be the effect of that on the global 100000 year uh, cycle um we don't quite know see the uh, climate is a very complex thing there are maybe millions of parameters that go into creating the weather that we are experiencing right now millions of parameters and you no matter how powerful your supercomputer is you cannot factor in all of these uh, parameters so like you said you have the major parameters like the orbit the eccentricity of the orbit the axial tilt the precession of the equinoxes those things uh, that is there then you then you have the greenhouse gas emissions that are going to warm the planet by about 2 degrees by the end of the century so typically an ice age i believe decreases the overall average temperature of the planet planet by between 7 to 10 degrees so if the average temperature say so don't quote me on that i may be somewhat off yeah but it decreases the temperature significantly that's why you have ice sheets all across the world so if the average temperature were to hypothetically let, for the sake of the argument drop by 10 degrees but you have this warming which is caused by human uh, by 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 man made emissions which will increase the temperature by 2 then a simplistic approach to this would be that you would have a decrease in temperature not by 10 degrees but by 8 degrees so the ice age would still occur but maybe it would not be that severe as it would otherwise have been so there have been certain disruptive uh phenomena in the past uh, that would otherwise not happen for instance the last time something strange happened was the something catastrophic happened was the uh, chicxulub impact which happened 66 million years ago which was uh, a very massive impact which killed off the non avian dinosaurs it led to a condition similar to a nuclear winter for about a decade or so there was no uh, sunlight so it was not a greenhouse thing it was the opposite of that uh, so we're not sure if it had any long term consequences on the climate of the planet uh, i don't think there are any leftover effects of that catastrophe in, on the climate today so that was obviously 66 million years ago but over a period of a million or 2 million years there would definitely have been a, a significant cooling of the earth even after sunlight uh, reappeared on the planet so um so there will definitely be some impact but we are not quite sure i don't think any scientist has been able to predict exactly what the effect of man made global uh, man made emissions and the global warming is going to be like if the ice age is due to happen it will certainly happen maybe it will not be as severe as it would otherwise have been but it would still happen so the 2 degrees rise in temperature would not be able to completely offset the 10 degrees decrease degrees uh, decrease in temperature that would be the result of an ice age so maybe the ice age would be somewhat milder but it it would still be there as far as i understand so that's how i see things going Swarup says, "If light has no mass, why is it affected by black holes?" Lage raho online says, "Kimcho, kimcho. <laughs> uh, do light rays, radio waves, X-rays, etc., kinds of waves 
weigh? Do they have weight? Do they have mass? And what type of substance are they made of? Uh, so light rays, light waves, whatever, X-rays, radio, these, these are all electromagnetic radiation. So what are they made of? They're made of pure energy. A light ray, let's say we call it a light, light ray or a radio wave or an X-ray, whatever you call it. These are nothing but photons. Photons are packets or bundles of pure energy that have a certain frequency and a certain uh, wavelength. The frequency is one upon the wavelength. The wavelength is one upon the frequency. So they are not made, of, made up of any substance. They are made up of pure energy. Initially, the universe was just pure energy. At the moment of the big, the so-called Big Bang, it was all the mass and energy of the entire universe compressed into a single point, a singularity. So it was all pure energy. And then eventually, it, the space-time expanded and things happened like things happen. And that gave rise to all the mass that we see, we see today because of the various things that happened later on. So X-rays, light rays, radio waves, gamma rays, all these things, they are just electromagnetic radiation. It's pure energy. It has a certain wavelength and a certain frequency. Now, the other question is, if light has no mass, why is it affected by black holes? I think I've answered this more than once, but let, let's take it again. So, light doesn't have mass. Light has energy. But we now know, because of uh, Albert Einstein, who first showed us this, that energy and mass are interchangeable. Energy is equivalent to a certain amount of mass, and mass is equivalent to a certain amount of energy. And it's the most famous equation, most likely in physics, E equals mc squared. E is the energy, mc squared, m is mass, and c is the speed of light. So energy is equal to m mass times the square of the speed of light. That's how you uh, translate energy into mass and mass into energy. Equivalence. So light has energy. The equation for the energy of a photon is E equals h nu or hf, where h is the frequency. Of the, of the light. So depending on that, and H is the uh, Planck constant. So um, that's why even though a photon doesn't have mass, it has an equivalent mass or an inertial mass, so to say, or a relativistic mass. You can, you can give it any name you want, inertial mass or relativistic mass, but it does have an equivalent mass to its energy. Now, why is light affected by black holes? Well, from the perspective of general relativity, we live in a four-dimensional space-time, right? And mass, the presence of mass in space-time has the effect of curving the four-dimensional fabric of space-time. So it's the, it's, it's what you, it's the, it's a good old trope, right? You have a flat surface, a trampoline kind of surface, you put a ball in that and it, it curves the surface, right? That sort of thing. So space-time is curved, not only the three dimension of dimension of space, but also the fourth dimension of time. It's curved by the presence of mass. Mass tells space-time how to curve and the curvature of space-time tells mass how to move, right? And since space-time gets curved, light is not able to travel in straight lines. And that's why it travels in a curved 
path. And that is why light is affected not just by black holes, but by any kind of mass. So that is one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that light, even though it has only energy, it has an equivalent mass. And that's why it is affected by black holes and other massive objects. That's another way of looking at it. It's just analogies that I'm giving you, but I hope that helps you understand why this phenomenon happens. Polomi says, could you please tell us why do fireflies glow in the night? And if they fly the whole night around, why? when do they sleep? Do insects sleep? Why do fireflies glow in the night? Uh, you know what? Fireflies can glow in the day as well, but you don't see it. So uh, this is called bioluminescence. Uh, fireflies have a certain enzyme in their abdomens. I think it's called luciferase or something like that. And when this uh, enzyme reacts with oxygen, it produces light and it's cold light. So when you have a light bulb, it, in order to emit light, it also has to has to become hot. So that is, that is hot light. Any light bulb will become hot when it glows. Similarly, if you heat a piece of metal, it will glow, but it will also emit a lot of heat. In the case of fireflies, this reaction that happens, this bioluminescent reaction is cold light. So it does not release any heat. If it were to do that, it would kill the fireflies. So uh, it is a chemical reaction. This enzyme that reacts with oxygen causes the glow to happen. And the fireflies can control the glow when it starts, when it stops. And typically they do it in pulses, you know. And if you see a whole forest full of fireflies, you will find you will find you will find that they are blinking in unison, in synchronicity. Yeah. So that's what you observe. That's a whole different phenomenon. So why do fireflies glow? Because they glow because of a phenomenon called bioluminescence. I think it's a enzyme called luciferase, if I'm not mistaken, that is behind this. Uh, fireflies don't have lungs; they don't breathe, but they do absorb oxygen through variety of, through a variety of means, and they can control this this entire process, which is why they are able to control the way they glow. So they glow in pulses, on, off, on, off, on, off. Now, uh, do fireflies fly the whole night? I don't think they fly the whole night. Uh, typically, they are sitting on branches and leaves and all that, and they are glowing and doing things. Um, what is the purpose of the glow? I'm not sure what the purpose is. Maybe it is to attract their mates. Maybe, maybe it is to communicate with each other. Maybe it is to warn away predators saying that I am not good to eat. This enzyme which glows is not a, doesn't have a good taste and it will upset your digestive system or something like that. So we're not quite sure why they glow, but they do glow. I don't think they fly the whole night. In my experience, they sit on branches and leaves and they sit and, and, and blink. That's what they do. Uh, do insects sleep? Insects do sleep. Uh, insects have a central nervous system. And it is something that we observe in all animals that have a central nervous system that they need sleep, right? Uh, so it is a property that seems to be inherent to all creatures that have a central nervous system, a brain and a nervous network, a network of nerves and neurons and all that that, that is present throughout the body. But typically you need, need to have a brain. A brain is essentially a biological neural network. So 
any animal that has this sort of central nervous system is observed to sleep sleep has been observed in flies you can see that if you if, if a fly is sleeping their their response to external stimuli is is delayed it is slow if you deprive flies flies of sleep then they need to catch up on more sleep just like human beings so yes insects do sleep not just fireflies but i think all insects need a period of sleep uh, per their whatever circadian cycle they have which is the typical 24 hour cycle that all humans and other animals that we observe they they have such a cycle so yes insects do indeed sleep anita asks three questions can nukes help us fight an alien invasion is it true that drdo has more non-scientific employees than scientific ones and why is there no factorial of negative numbers? All right, let's see this. Can nukes help us fight against an alien invasion? I think that if aliens have the technology to, to traverse interstellar space many light years and reach the Earth, if they have that sort of technology, which is way more advanced than anything we have, then I don't think nuclear weapons are going to be a big deal for them. Uh, so... I am a little skeptical. First of all, we don't know if aliens exist. We have never found any evidence thus far. Maybe it's because we are too primitive and our detection mechanism is not good enough. But if aliens do exist and if they're able to come all the way here and try to invade us, then it means that their technology is way, way, way more advanced than anything we can imagine. And if it is that advanced, then I don't think nuclear weapons are going to make a big dent on their efforts to, to um, invade us, like you say invasion so it's like you know a fly or a mosquito trying to bite you you can just swat it off that sort of thing it may have this that sort of effect for aliens so uh if aliens can come here and try to invade us i am a little skeptical if nuclear weapons could deter them or or defeat them yeah okay is it true that drdo has more non-scientific employees than scientific ones as far as i know drdo has roughly 30000 employees on its payroll and about 5000 of these employees are scientific staff scientists or engineers which means that about 25000 of the 30000 employees are non-scientific staff i don't know what what function what purpose they serve what function they perform but it seems it's it looks like a colossal waste of money a massively colossal waste of money let, let me see if i can find something online let me see okay what do we have all right i have a wikipedia source as always please be informed please be warned that Wikipedia is not necessarily a reliable source. I'm just putting it for the sake of convenience and brevity. I'm sure there are sources here. So if you see this, it says that it has 30,000 employees out of which 5,000 are scientists. And it gives some reference. Let's take a look at the reference if we are able to open it. Maybe it's not openable. Let us see. Uh, so yeah, it does look like it has only... 5,000 scientific employees out of a sum total of 30,000 employees. So just imagine the kind of salaries you're paying. 30,000, 25,000 non-scientist employees. 
you have to pay their salaries because they are government employees you also have to pay their pensions whenever they get retirement and all that it's a colossal waste of resources in my opinion uh the document did not open maybe we'll take a look at it other time some other time or maybe you can do some of your own research about this but yes it is indeed the case that uh there are way more non scientific employees in drdo than scientists why is there no factorial of negative numbers so how do you define a factorial let's say you have 5 the number 5 the factorial of number 5 is defined as 5 Times five minus one times five minus two times five minus three all the way to one. It's five times four times three times two times one. The factorial of ten is ten times ten minus one ten minus two and all all the way up to one. Right. So it is that is the way factorials are defined. There is no definition of the factorial for negative numbers. Let because if you try to do the same thing. for a negative number let's say you want to do 3 factor minus 3 factorial then you would have to do minus 3 minus 1 times minus 3 minus 2 and so it would go all the way to minus infinity so uh it's not something that is definable or defined for negative numbers factorial essentially is a way of arranging things let's say you got five different cards or five different chairs in how many different ways can you arrange them that is the meaning of factorial yeah so in the case of negative numbers there is no way of arranging negative numbers because negative numbers are actually in the real world unphysical or or they are something that that only exists in 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 mathematics not in the real world because there is no minus 1 in the real world right so uh, th- these are the reasons why there is no the factorial for negative numbers has is not defined so that's what i could explain or i can explain Aditya Ranjan Sahu says please throw light on the super kamyo kamyo kande project and its purpose working etc uh, when will india start investing amounts into particle accelerators joint ventures like lhc etc okay let's talk about super kamyo kande uh, the super kamyo kande uh, detector is a neutrino detector it is uh, in japan it is located deep 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 underground in an, in a disused mine of sorts so let me show you what it looks like i'm sure we can find an image of super kamyokande all right let me put that on the screen and show you this thing in all its glory give me a second let us place that on the screen so this is what the detector looks like from inside these bright things that you see are called photomultiplier tubes and the detector is filled with ultra pure water which means that this is it's going to be filled with water that has almost no impurities whatsoever the water that we regularly use and drink and all that has full of is full of impurities dissolved minerals salts other chemicals other things as well in very small quantities but it's it's all still there i mean when you drink mineral water it has minerals dissolved into it so this water that is used in this detector is ultra pure water almost 100% purity and uh, like i said all these bright things are um uh, 
photo multiplier tubes so what happens what are neutrinos neutrinos are uh, are fundamental particles that are that are emitted by the sun every single second trillions of solar neutrinos are passing through my body every single second and through your bodies as well the sun gives off incredible amounts of solar neutrinos per second neutrinos have incredibly small masses they are all, they they it was believed for the longest time that neutrinos are massless but now it is known that neutrinos have incredibly small masses close to zero very close to zero so the sun emits through its nuclear reactions trillions incredible amounts of solar neutrinos and trillions of them pass through our bodies every second now neutrinos interact weakly they interact only through the weak nuclear force which is which is incredibly incredibly weak so a neutrino can pass through the earth without interacting with a single atom inside the entire earth and trillions of such neutrinos pass through the earth so what this experiment does what this apparatus does is that it has ultra pure water in this tank and the tank is surrounded by all these uh, these detectors yes and we know that there are so many neutrinos passing through this water in this cham- chamber and every once in a while one of these neutrinos will interact with one of the molecules of the water in here and the interaction is such, going to be such that uh it's going to produce a flash of light and this flash of light is going to travel faster than the speed of light inside water but but slower than the speed of light in vacuum and this gives rise to what is called the cherenkov effect and these photomultiplier tubes are going to their purpose is to detect these flashes of light which happen just once in a while maybe once a day or so even though there are so many neutrinos going through this detector so that is what this apparatus does and through the detections it's able it, it is able to study the properties of neutrinos so that is what this detector is the super kamiokande detector neutrino detector and uh, it can help us detect supernovas because when a star explodes in a supernova explosion it releases incredible amounts of neutrinos and uh, that can help us uh, understand supernovas better so and it, it can also help us detect where these supernovas are happening and so on and so forth so there are multiple reasons why this uh, detector has been constructed and that's what it is about so the next question is when will india start investing money into particle accelerators joint ventures like lhc etc i don't think that's going to happen uh we have a couple of detectors somewhere or the other in the tifr in mumbai there is this there is an ancient uh, ancient instrument called a pelletron which uh, which accelerates i believe lead ions to a certain velocity and all that and, and collides them with targets and you can do some basic nuclear physics experiments with that i think it's been around for decades yeah this pelletron i believe and uh, we may have some other instrumentation as well but nothing nothing cutting edge nothing which would be considered to be the latest kind of thing you know uh, so particle accelerators cost a lot of money it's a, it's a very advanced technology and uh, for instance the large hadron collider 
I believe it cost billions of dollars, maybe around $10 billion, maybe more, roughly something like that. That's a lot of money. And it consumes an enormous amount of electricity in its operation. So I think the budget of the LHC was larger than the annual budget of many countries. So it's very expensive. And there is no point constructing a particle detector that is like underpowered because you're not going to do any new physics with that. You're not going to make any new discoveries with that. So, uh, so there is no point as such right now of constructing a, a super expensive particle accelerator in India right now because whatever had to be done, whatever experimentation needed to be done to discover whatever we discovered thus far has already been done in other countries. So it would be like reinventing the wheel and, and what's the purpose of that? Yeah. What is going to happen is that India is going to get its own LIGO. So LIGO is the gravitational wave detector that uh, has done all the detection of gravitational waves thus far. When was the first gravitational wave detected? I think it was in 2015 or thereabouts. Yes, that was done by LIGO. So India is going to get one LIGO detect detector. It's going to be called Indigo or something. Uh, the project was approved several years ago. I don't know what is the status of the thing right now. You need a big bunch, big piece of land on which you build the detector. It's in, a, it's a Michelson interferometer kind of design. It's a, each arm is several kilometers long. So what India will be getting is essentially the same detector as the two detectors in the US, and eventually, maybe in the next five years or so, five or ten years or so, it will become operational. I don't know why it's taking so long, but yeah, that's how it is in India. Everything takes a lot of time. So that is one thing that's going to happen in India. That is the kind of experimental physics uh, that will be done here. But apart from that, nothing else. That's how it is. Samarth says, how do wildfires begin? What is a wildfire season? Is it comp completely because of climate change? A wildfire is a forest fire or a, or a fire that, that takes place, that occurs in uninhabited land, typically a forest or a jungle or, or grassland, savanna, that sort of thing. Yeah. How do wildfires begin and what's a wildfire season? See, I believe that about most of the wildfires that begin are, are because of man-made causes about 15 or 20% of wildfires would have natural causes. Maybe 80% of them, roughly, are initiated by, by man-made causes. Somebody is smoking and they dump their cigarette butt somewhere without, without extinguishing it properly. That may, and, and that may cause a wildfire. Or, or somebody sets a small fire just for, for arson purposes that could cause a wildfire. You have an electrical short circuit somewhere that could trigger a fire in a forest or, or what's called a wildfire. So most of these wildfires actually are caused by human beings. What are the natural causes of wildfires? So typically a wildfire, a forest fire takes place in the dry season. When there is a drought or when there is a summer, the heat is high. That's typically when these fires occur. Fire needs three things. First of all, it needs fuel. So let's say dry grass or a, or a dry forest where there is very little moisture. So it needs fuel firstly. Secondly, it needs oxygen. We have oxygen everywhere. 
And thirdly, it needs a spark, a temperature that ignites the fire. So typically, it is lightning that sets off natural wildfires. When you have a lightning strike on a tree, and if the tree is dry, then that naturally causes a fire. And then this, the fire can spread if the forest or this, this area is dry. So that is typically how wildfires begin, through natural causes. What is a wildfire season? Typically, it's a summer season or a season, a period of time when you have dry weather, there is no rainfall. So forests are dry, grassland is dry, and that makes it very conducive to, to start burning if there is a fire. If you have a, a forest that has recently had rainfall, even in, so in such a forest, even though if there's a lightning strike, that fire will most likely not spread far. It may just burn down the tree, but the surrounding trees and grassland will not be affected much because they're all wet. When you have drought or, or dry season, that's when the fire can spread. So that is what a wildfire season is. It is a dry season, let's say in Australia. Yeah. So in recent years, in 2020, I believe 2021 as well, you had these massive, this massive spate of wildfire outbreaks. And it caused a lot of damage. Many animals died because of that. Because of that, many people lost their houses. You've had wildfires in Spain, in Europe as well. And I believe in 1998 or 88, was it or 86? I'm not sure which year it was. There was this massive wildfire season in the Yellowstone National Park in the US. I think it was in the 1980s or 1990s, maybe 1990s, and a significant proportion of this national park was burned down in these this outbreak of wildfires and even a decade later you could see the burned down trees they were still strewn around yeah so uh, that's how it happens and often what happens is that firefighters and uh, national park wardens etc they are overzealous in combating wildfires Fires often happen, about 10-20% of fires happen due to natural causes, by lightning strikes and so on. Such fires should not be hindered. This is a natural phenomenon. Such fires should be allowed to go on and die off naturally. So when you allow that to happen, when you have allow these small fires to progress and die natural deaths, that ensures that there are patches of forest land or dry land that are cleared out naturally. If you don't allow natural fire, wildfires to, to die a natural death, then over time, your forest becomes a, a ticking time bomb. And when a fire does happen, almost the entire forest will be burned down. So that's why sometimes these people, they get overzealous in combating and, and, and stopping wildfires. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what it is. Is it completely because of climate change? I don't think it's completely because of, because of climate change. But yes, we have extreme weather nowadays. You have hotter summers in, in recent years. So that does contribute to a certain degree to the incidence of wildfires and the intensity and severity of the effect. Yeah. Okay, Karan says, what is... What are cosmic rays and what is cosmic wind? Okay, cosmic rays are essentially fragments of atoms that come from space, from outer space, and they bombard the Earth. Typically, you have fragments of atoms as in atomic nuclei. 
So what is the nucleus of a hydrogen atom? It's a proton. What's the nucleus of a helium atom? It's an alpha particle and so on. So typically, and you also have electrons and all that. So cosmic rays are the this bombardment of atomic fragments that happens from outer space. It hits our atmosphere and it, it causes downstream effects. So typically when a cosmic ray hits the atmosphere, it, it interacts with the atoms in the atmosphere, the upper atmosphere. And uh, a new kind of particle is created out of this. It's called pions. Yeah. Pions are created and pions decay into muons and muons are what uh, hit the hit the earth and they go deep into the earth's uh, crust, into the earth's surface. So that is typically what cosmic rays are. Now cosmic rays come in a variety of uh, energies. Uh, most cosmic rays are reasonably low energy cosmic rays, like a, like a small underpowered uh, particle accelerator. But you also have these very energetic cosmic rays, ultra high energy cosmic rays, UHECRs, that uh, are more that have more energy than anything the LHC can produce, for instance, right? Um, so yes, you have these cosmic rays once in a while, UHECRs, ultra high energy cosmic rays that you find. Uh, I think in the 1990s, one of, there was a cosmic ray detection that was called the Oh My God particle. It was, I believe, a proton or some such fragment of an atom. But the energy is it the energy it carried was like a cricket ball traveling at around 60 kilometers or, or 100 kilometers per, per, per hour. That's the kind of energy a single atomic fragment was carrying. It was called the oh my god particle. Yeah. So that's what cosmic rays are. It's a natural phenomenon. If you go higher into the atmosphere, you find a higher incidence. Uh, you find you are able to detect more and more ionized ray, uh, uh, atmospheric. Uh, uh, particles and so on. Yeah. So I think these cosmic rays were detected in the 1910s or 1920s by a scientist, by a physicist who went up into the atmosphere on a, on a balloon and uh, measured the amount of ionization of the air at higher altitudes. And that's when it was detected that it was discovered that there is higher ionization as you go higher up into the atmosphere. And that was the discovery of cosmic rays. So that's what cosmic rays are. <clears throat> Now, we are not quite sure of how they are produced. There are various possible mechanisms. One mechanism is that it is they are produced by supernova explosions, uh, active galactic nuclei, various other uh, mechanisms are also proposed. Uh, there are more exotic mechanisms that have been proposed, like the annihilation of dark matter particles, uh, Hawking radiation, things like that. So we're not quite sure of exactly how cosmic rays are produced, especially the ultra high energy cosmic rays, but various mechanisms have been proposed and some of them have been kind of corroborated. Like there is, there seems to be definitely a supernova component to cosmic rays. So some cosmic rays are definitely produced by supernova explosions, but why do cosmic rays come in all the time? Most of the cosmic rays are, are deflected by the Earth's magnetic field. But some of them definitely uh, hit the atmosphere and the effect can be measured. Yeah, So that's what cosmic rays are. What is cosmic wind? It's, it's the very thin diffuse amount of dust and gas that you find in interstellar space. So let's say you're in a rocket or a spacecraft that is traveling across the stars in interstellar, interstellar space. Space is vacuum. 
but it's not a perfect vacuum there is there you will you will encounter some atoms of hydrogen and some other elements from time to time it's a very 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 thin and diffuse gas but in some parts of the cosmos you will have thicker dust clouds thicker gas clouds especially in star forming regions and so on in nebulae etc so all of this is what makes up cosmic wind it's what you encounter as you travel through interstellar space that is cosmic wind pavan says please talk about the permian extinction and how cynodonts were able to survive in those conditions is it true that we are successors of cynodonts so you're talking about the permian triassic extinction event event that happened roughly 250 million years before today maybe 251 million years before today you can look up the exact uh, time period when this happened but roughly 250 million years before today 25 crore years before today it was one of the uh, most severe extinction events that we have uh, witnessed in the history of our planet i think uh, more than 60 or 70% of uh, species terrestrial species went extinct and maybe maybe close to 90% of of uh, marine species may have gone extinct during this extinction event so that's what the per- permian triassic extinction event was what caused this we not quite sure of what caused it it happened so long ago and the evidence for this extinction event is found only in the fossil record so you can see that lots lots of uh, animals have died out and the fossil record is found in sedimentary fashion in sediments and you can see so each sediment that comes above the previous one is a is a is a subsequent time period it represents a subsequent time period you can see there is a sudden change in the fossil record lots of species that were found below have suddenly disappeared which is the sign of an extinction event so we know this happened because of the fossil record but we are not quite sure why it happened typically it's a combination of multiple factors one of the factors that is possible is a massive super volcanic explosion in siberia the siberian traps it was called so that could have contributed to this extinction event we also know that the oceans had become anoxic what is anoxia it means the oceans lost their dissolved oxygen how do fish breathe how do fish survive they need oxygen they they need oxygen in their blood so there is oxygen that is dissolved in the water of the oceans and rivers and ponds and lakes etc which the fish use for respiration through their gills if the ocean becomes deprived of water if the if the level of uh, oxygen sorry if the level of oxygen that is dissolved in the water decreases beyond a certain level you will have a massive dying out of marine life first of all the fish will die if the fish die then those the animals that eat the fish will also die so that will cause a cascading chain reaction and if it if, if the anoxia is widespread then it could cause an extinction event like the one we are talking about so it is known it is most likely known that the waters the oceans had become anoxic in large parts and water had also become acidic apparently 
because of various reasons. So you had a combination of factors. You had the anoxia in the oceans. You had acidification of the oceans, and you had the Siberian traps, super volcano explosion, eruption, which also contributed to this. So maybe it's a, a combination of these factors that caused the Permian-Triassic extinction event about 250 million years before today. Now, you are asking me about cynodonts. Let me show you what cynodonts look like. So cynodonts were the ancestors of mammals. This is what cynodonts looked like. They, they lived during this period. And uh, there were many species of these creatures, cynodonts, that looked kind of like dogs, kind of like rats. Yeah, that's what they looked like. They, they came in different sizes and shapes. And uh, yes, so these were the ancestors of mammals. One of the lineages of these cynodonts survived and that is why we are alive today. So these creatures, so these animals that you are seeing here are artistic recreations of what these creatures would have looked like. And these are our ancestors. So yes, all mammals that, that survive today are the descendants of one lineage of cynodonts that was able to survive the Triassic-Permian extinction event. Uh, so how did cynodonts survive this? We don't know. Uh, maybe it was a species of small cynodont that survived. If you are small, you don't need a lot of food. You don't need to consume large amounts of food if you are a small creature. And uh, maybe that's why they were able to make it. Similarly, their descendants that survived the, uh, the Chicxulub impact event also survived most likely because they were small. So there was this period of nuclear winter after the Chicxulub impact and uh, we know that our ancestors, the mammals of that time, survived. Maybe it's because they were small. And similarly, the avian dinosaurs also survived because they were small in size and they were able to survive on, on less food. So typically, typically, if you are small in size, it actually kind of, in these adverse conditions, helps you to survive. Larger species of animals die out very easily because they need large amounts of food to survive. So that's how it works. So most likely cynodonts or the lineage of cynodonts that survived, survived because of a small size. Okay, Karan says the ultra massive black hole TUN618 is 2606 astronomical units in diameter while our entire solar system is 80 astronomical units in diameter. The size of this black hole is mind-boggling. How would such a large black hole form? Um, what is an astronomical unit, first of all? An astronomical unit is the distance between the sun, the sun and the earth. That distance, the average distance between the sun and the earth is called one astronomical unit. So I'm not sure how large the diameter of the solar system is, the actual solar system, if you look, if you consider the Oort cloud and all that, extends to beyond one light year in diameter. But yeah, if you consider the, the main planets up to Neptune, maybe up to Pluto, maybe if you look at the other outer planet, uh, minor planets, etc., maybe it's 80 astronomical units. And 
if we take that as the diameter of our solar system, then this, this supermassive black hole is monstrous and massive. Let's see what it looks like. So we don't have an actual image of the black hole, but we have these artistic representations of this thing. So yeah, you can see that it's it's quite large. Let's see um, a comparison if we can find between this thing and the sun. All right, so so yeah, there, there you are. So it's an enormous, enormous black hole. The question is, how did this black hole become so large? So large. Um, okay, so how do black holes form? There are multiple mechanisms through which black holes are born. Uh, the most well-known mechanism is the death of a star. If a star is a certain size, maybe 20 solar masses or more, then it, at the end of its life, it goes supernova and there's an implosion. And the implosion, the mass in the implosion that is falling inwards is so, is so high that it, it, uh, it collapses into a black hole. Right? It, it uh, is able to overcome the other forces that are pre trying to prevent the collapse, the Pauli exclusion principle and all that, and it collapses into a black hole. That is one mechanism of black hole formation. Now, what we know is that most galaxies have a supermassive black hole at the center. Our own galaxy, the Milky Way, is known to have a supermassive black hole at, the, at its center. And all the other most of the other galaxies that we know know of have supermassive black holes at their centers. So it is one of the theories is that galaxies formed in the early universe around black hole seeds, black holes that eventually became supermassive black holes. And maybe these supermassive black holes originated as primordial microscopic black holes. So in the very early universe, it is possible that an incredible amount of microscopic black holes were formed because of quantum fluctuations and because of the incredible densities that we had in, in energy densities that we had in the, in the early epoch of the universe. So you would have regions of over densities that would collapse into, into black holes. And these are the primordial black holes. We have never detected any, but according to the laws of physics, it is quite likely that enormous amounts of primordial black holes may have formed. So when you talk about a black hole this large, incredibly large, larger than the solar system itself, most likely such black holes would form from the merger of multiple smaller black holes. So the merger of a black hole is like, you could, you could consider the analogy of two water drops merging, that sort of thing, yeah? So a black hole this large, we don't quite know how it is formed, but most likely I would imagine it would have emerged out of multiple mergers of multiple supermassive black holes. And that would have happened, I don't know, in the past 13.8 million billion years somewhere. So what are the exact circumstances that led to its formation? We still don't know. And maybe we may never know because it's, uh, I don't know how far away it is from here, but yeah, one of the scenarios is the merger of multiple black holes. Maybe it swallowed entire galaxies and the supermassive black holes that came with those galaxies. And that is one possibility. So 
we don't have the answers but there are multiple scenarios that could lead to the formation of a black hole this size naga sai says how do living organisms know at what rate they should age time dilation depending on the gravity general relativity or velocity special relativity that they experience okay so aging and general relativity or special relativity see listen organisms don't know anything organisms age as part of a natural biological process i am an organism we are all organisms if we would have our way we would never age at all yeah but it's it doesn't work like that it's not a question of what we want and what we wish to do and what we know it's just a biological process physics is not involved in this of course it is quantum physics that gives rise to chemistry and it is chemistry that gives rise to biology so yeah at the, at the deepest level it is quantum physics yeah sure uh but really relativity doesn't seem to enter the picture so there is no time dilation here there is no special or general relativity involved in the aging process of animals and organisms so how does aging happen in the body in any body in any organism you have cellular division yeah cells divide and that's how they reproduce and that's how the the body uh, produces new cells now most cells carry dna our red blood cells don't have nuclei and they don't have dna but most other cells have dna and the dna comes is is found in the nucleus of cells in the in the form of chromosomes right now these chromosomes comes come in various sizes and shapes x chromosomes y chromosomes these are the um, these are the sex chromosomes and then you have other chromosomes as well there are 23 pairs of chromosomes in the human in the human in the human cell as far as i remember yeah uh now when cell division happens the chromosomes also divide and they replicate each time cellular division happens the ends of the chromosomes which are called telomeres become slightly shorter let's see what a telomere looks like let me put telomeres on the screen so telomeres are these structures at the ends of chromosomes every time cellular division takes place the telomeres at the end of the end of the chromosomes become slightly slightly shorter and as you grow older as your body ages there is more and more cellular division that takes place at a certain rate and over time the ends of your chromosomes the telomeres become shorter and shorter so that seems to contribute to the process of aging so as you can see here in a young organism the telomeres are longer in an older organism the telomeres are shorter and it is also believed that if you if you are able to prevent the shortening of the telomeres then you may actually end up either slowing down or even stopping the process of aging and that is where this all this research is is being focused right now on on trying to stop the process of the shortening of telomeres if you can do that then you may be able to prevent aging and you may have 
permanent youthful life you know so that that is uh, still a work in progress it's still far away if it ever happens but that is how the process of aging seems to happen yeah so it doesn't have anything to do with time dilation or special relativity or general relativity it's just biology right that is what is behind the process of aging okay runtime says can you explain about different constellations and their significance what are constellations constellations are various arrangements of stars that we see in the night sky so if you go out in the dark people these days don't look at the sky you go out into the go out into the open at night where there is less light pollution then you will be able to see lots of stars in the sky and if you see the stars we human beings are very good at perceiving shapes even when there are where there are no shapes so in the old days our ancestors would look at the stars look at the sky and they would imagine that the stars come in the, the the arrangements of stars is in various shapes and they would give names to these shapes one of the famous ones in sanskrit is called the saptarishi constellation in in english it's called the great bear or the great or the big dipper or whatever so let's see what constellations look like <clears throat> there are the constellations here we are so um this is the orion constellation orion's belt is there right it's the is the hunter and this is a sky chart with various uh, constellations cassiopeia andromeda fornax sculptor and so on and so forth so these are the various constellations uh sagittarius scorpius libra serpents the snake capricorn the goat and so on and so forth right so these are the various constellations they are simply stars that we have imagined to to be arranged in various shapes and that's how we perceive it from here if we were to go to a different star system then we would see the star from a different perspective and then you would have different constellations you would not find the same constellations from a different star system if you were to go to let's say proxima centauri and look at the sky from there you would not see the same night sky as what we see from here on earth so it's all a question of your perspective of where you are where you are located and you see a certain perspective from there right so they, that's what the constellations are the various shapes that we have imagined that the stars are arranged in and typically it's the brightest stars that we arrange in these shapes i mean that's how we imagine the shapes to to be that's what constellations are we call them nakshatra in sanskrit what is their significance there is no real significance of course we we find significance in everything so there is this entire uh, thing called astrology the zodiac zodiacal signs and um the constellations are named after zodiac signs or zodiac signs are the constellations and it seems to have some relationship with astrology not astronomy and what that is i don't know i have no understanding or expertise in this particular field astrology so so that's all i can tell you uh from my perspective the only significance is that it 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 looks like various shapes and that's what we we have imagined there is no physical significance as such from my perspective as a scientist i i don't understand astrology yeah so that's what i can say long question rishav says do you think we are creating a prison and trapping ourselves unknowingly 
for future space missions or satellites stop working after a certain time it just becomes uh, a rogue uncontrollable object orbiting the earth there are lots of satellites orbiting the earth without any control they're dead they're dead if the number keeps increasing rapidly then it will be impossible for humans in the future to send rockets to any other planet if this becomes reality then what will be the, what will be the solution uh, it is becoming increasingly a problem an issue that needs to be uh, looked into seriously uh, it's not just dead satellites it's also space junk debris you know uh, so that's becoming a problem there is there is this entire cloud of space debris around the the earth uh, let me see space debris let what does it look like so this is a representation of the major such objects that are in orbit around the earth uh, these are the major ones but there are lots more such objects which are you know centimeters in size that can cause massive damage to a spacecraft or a rocket they can even i mean puncture the the, the walls of a space station and and cause well catastrophic damage so yeah space debris is definitely a big problem so is the problem of of uh, drifting boosters in space boosters typically re-enter the atmosphere quickly and and burn up or or fall into space or fall into oceans or maybe somewhere else but these dead satellites etc are and especially space debris the broken up space debris is a big problem and if we don't do something about it now it's going to like you say trap us in a prison that we will be on we will be surface bound we will not be able to safely launch rockets if there is so much debris and you know that could uh, prevent future space exploration so that is certainly something that could happen in the future if we don't take steps to rectify the problem right now so what steps can we take the simplest action that we can take is that any satellite that is launched should have an expiry date and it should have a mechanism that once the expiry date is reached it re-enters the earth atmosphere and burns up in the atmosphere so you could provide it with a small rocket motor rocket engine or something for simply for just this purpose that when it reaches a certain amount of time in space it will be uh, brought back into the atmosphere and allowed to burn up you do that it, it's going to solve the problem but of course a, a rocket motor rocket engine costs money it also adds extra weight to the bill that you uh, to the bill that you have to pay when you launch your your spacecraft so yeah most people uh, most nations most companies most corporations would try to cut down on that cost right and leave the problem for the future so that is a problem so i think there needs to be some kind of consensus among the space faring nations that this is the new standard or norm that we need to uh, all follow if we do that then at least the spa- the spacecraft uh, and satellites we are launching now and in the future will not contribute further to this problem right so yeah that is the one solution i can think of that ensure that every single satellite that is launched is allowed to remain in orbit for a certain specific number of years you decide what the number of years is you want it to be there for 5 years great it's your choice you want it to be there for 20 years your choice but the, at the end of the time period it is your responsibility that you bring it down and make it burn up into the in the atmosphere 
So that sort of thing needs to be done. If we do that, then things will be fine. Oman says, is there any, any evidence to suggest that the laws of physics remain constant in this universe as assumed by Sir Albert Einstein in the special theory of relativity? Uh, all the evidence that we have tells us that the laws of physics seem to be the same no matter where we look. So how do we know this? We know this through observational evidence. The laws of physics that apply to us over here on our home planet are the same laws of physics that apply anywhere else, that are enforced anywhere else in the, in the universe. Even if you have a galaxy that's 10 billion light years away from here, the same laws of physics are known to be enforced there as well because we are able to make observational uh, make observations through telescopes and with the various other instruments. And from all the evidence that we have gathered over all these past few decades, or the past century and, and more, all of this evidence has not thrown up a single instance of any known law of physics being violated, right? So everything that we know about physics is true even there out in outer space. So thus far, we have found no evidence that suggests that the laws of physics change in different directions or, 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 or they are different far away from here, all right? So from all the evidence that we have, the laws of physics are the same everywhere, thus far. Jasmine says, what is the definition of consciousness in your modern physics, if there is one? Considering the fact that physics has rules and laws and theories for everything. Um, there is no definition of consciousness in modern physics. Consciousness, we don't know what it is. We don't even have a definition for it. And that, that's why we are not able to discuss it or, or, or do research in it. Consciousness does seem to be a thing in physics. Uh, it, it may or may not have some kind of role to play in various interpretations of quantum mechanics. Yeah. So consciousness is becoming increasingly important, especially in the frontiers of physics. Possibly, possibly, yeah. But we still don't have a definition of what consciousness is. Consciousness, as far as we understand, seems to be possibly a biological phenomenon. We know that we are conscious, but we don't know how to define what this consciousness is. Consciousness seems to be a, a combination of various characteristics. We are conscious. We know that animals are conscious. Our pet doogie or pet cat they are conscious. Birds are conscious. We, When we see something that is conscious, we recognize that immediately. But we don't have a clear scientific definition of consciousness. We have various artistic definitions of consciousness, etc. But science is a rigorous thing. It's a rigorous practice. And we need very clear and precise definitions of phenomena if we want to actually uh, examine those phenomena and uh, in a scientific manner. And unfortunately, we don't have a definition of consciousness. The question is, what are the characteristics of a conscious system? Let's call it a system. Let's say I have a box in space and let's say that box is conscious. What are the characteristics that it should exhibit in order to be conscious? Is there a, cons a consensus for that? 
we are talking about a box, not a human being. So what is the difference between a conscious box and a conscious human being? What's the difference between a conscious computer, if such a thing would exist ever, and a conscious human being? We don't have any clear definition of what constitutes consciousness. Clearly consciousness has something to do with memory. Without memory, there is no consciousness. To be conscious, you need to first be conscious that you exist. To be conscious of yourself, you need to have some memories of the past. So there seems to be some relationship with memory. So a system that is conscious needs to be able to store memory. To be able to store memory, it needs to have organs that capture information from the outside universe. Right? So now we are talking about biological uh, aspects of that because, or maybe mechanical aspects. So we are not quite able to define clearly, precisely and unambiguously what a conscious system is like, what are its characteristics. You know, sufficient, necessary and sufficient conditions for something to be conscious. So we don't have that as of today. And that's why it's uh, well nigh impossible to have any meaningful discussion of consciousness in science as of today. Maybe in the future things will change. Keshab says, in one of the recent videos, you have said that the brain can be developed differently when you learn multiple languages. Is it about thinking abilities or actual physical changes that happen in the mind? Um, there seems to be a relationship between multilingualism, being multilingual, and the IQ score that you uh, that you that you get when you do an IQ test. So people who are multilingual seem to have a somewhat higher intelligence quotient. Now, IQ is not necessarily a measure of your intelligence. Some people say it's a pseudo pseudoscientific swindle or whatever, but there seems to be a correlation between knowing more than one language and the amount of IQ points that you have more than the average. Yeah, that's one thing. Now, I'm not sure if people, if anyone has done a study of multilingual people and what sort of brain structure they have. I'm not sure about that. But what we do know is that there was a study that was done um, in people who memorized large, large quantities of Sanskrit texts. So uh, let me see if I have any of that here. I think it's called the Sanskrit effect, right? So, so there are these scholars, pundits, who memorize entire large large Sanskrit texts. They memorize it precisely, not just the text itself, but the correct pronunciation and the way in which you're supposed to recite it and all, all that. And do it, they do it for years and years and years. And what was discovered is that the, the certain portions of, the, of their brain are more developed than others. Now, we don't know if it is only something to do with Sanskrit only or other languages also. If you memorize things, will it, will you have, will it have the same effect? But thus far, it seems to be uh, isolated to only Sanskrit as far as we know. It's called the Sanskrit effect. Let me show you what this looks like. Um, let me pull that up on the screen. Give me a second, please. There was this article in Scientific American. 
Yeah, it's called a neuroscientist explores the Sanskrit effect. MRI scans show that memorizing ancient mantras increases the size of brain regions associated with cognitive function. And uh, yeah, this article describes all of that. Um, so these these Vedic Sanskrit pundits that train for years to orally memorize and exactly recite very ancient texts, which are 40,000 to 100,000 words, right? Um, they discovered that the structural MRI scanning was remarkable. Numerous regions in the brains of the pundits were dramatically larger than those of other people with, with over 10% more gray matter across both cerebral hemispheres and substantial increases in cortical thicknesses and so on and so forth. And uh, more interestingly, for verbal memory, the pundit's right hippocampus, a region of the brain that plays a vital role in short as well as long-term memory, had more gray matter across nearly 75% of this subcortical structure and so on and so forth. So yes, uh, the memorization of Sanskrit texts seems to alter the structure of your brain and thicken certain regions and uh, it's certainly something that is detectable in MRI scans. So yeah, that is what I can tell you about being multilingual and whether that has any effect on the brain structure. We, I am not quite sure. Maybe you can do your own research and find out if any such study has been done. But this is what I know for sure. Okay. Next question. Avinash says, if a distant solar system is millions of light years away, and so we see it as it was millions of years ago, how can we see what it looks like now? We can't. We cannot. In relativity, simultaneity itself doesn't exist. Whether two events happen simultaneously or not depends on where you are relative to these two events. If you are in a certain position, location in space-time, the two events may appear to happen simultaneously from your perspective. But your friend who may be in a certain other position in space-time may see one event happen before the other. So this is called the simultaneity of relativity. This is something you learn when you study special relativity. So simultaneous events are not necessarily simultaneous. They are simultaneous only for certain people in certain places, for certain observers. Now, if you, you have a solar system that's a million light years away, you're seeing it right now through the telescope or whatever, you're seeing what happened there a million years ago. Let's say you receive a message from an alien civilization. Yeah? And you try to figure out where it came from and you see that it, it came from a, a system that is a million light years away. Then what happened actually is that those people who sent you that message, message, sent that message a million years before today. Right? So that's how it is. There is no way of, there is no such thing as right now. Right now happens only here. What is right now here is not right now there. Simultaneity itself is not quite a thing in physics, in, in special relativity. Yeah? So you can never see what it looks like right now you can only see what it looked like then. That's just how it is. There is no way around this uh, restriction, so to say. 
Yeah. Quotes, quotes says, what time is it at the poles? North Pole and South Pole. Okay, let's see what the poles look like, shall we? Ah, we're going to bring in the map today. In a science session. Uh, sorry, not this one. Let me bring in something else. Let me bring in the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Okay, poles. So, on the top you have the North Pole. On the bottom you have the South Pole. Let's say you are sitting, you are standing at the North Pole. And you go 10 kilometers south, 10 kilometers west, and then again 10 kilometers north, you will end up again at the North Pole. Right? So that's how it is. So no matter which direction you go in south, and if you if you do this procedure, you will end up at the North Pole. And similarly, the reverse happens at the South Pole. So the Earth has these longitudes, which give us the time zones. But the thing is, at the poles, all the longitudes converge. Right? All the longitudes converge at, at the poles. Which means that if you are at the poles, you can decide whatever time it is. It is, it is all times at once. Time doesn't really have a meaning fr from the perspective of time zones at the poles. So let's say you are from India and you're working in Antarctica. You go to the South Pole. You can decide that it is Indian Standard Time over there. But your friend who is from Chile can say that it is the Chilean Standard Time over there. And another friend of yours who is from South Africa could say that it is South African Standard Time. So it doesn't matter. At the polls, you can interpret it as whatever time you want it to be. Because all the longitudes converge at the poles. So all times are the same. At the poles. Karan says, what are microbial black holes? Microbial black holes. So I have never heard of... <laughs> I, I've never heard of microbial black holes. I, I know about microscopic black holes. Microbes, which is microscopic organisms, are indeed microbial, microscopic, but they are not black holes. And black holes are not living organisms. right? So there is no such thing as a microbial black hole, but there are possibly microscopic black holes, MBHs. And uh, microscopic black holes could have been produced in, in incredible numbers, enormous quantities in the very early universe during the reheating period, even before inflation, before the inflationary epoch, during the inflationary epoch as, as well, possibly. Yeah, an overproduction of microscopic black holes could have happened during these various phases of the very early history of our universe because of quantum fluctuations and these fluctuations creating regions, very small regions of over density that would collapse into a singularity, into a black hole and that sort of thing. So these are the hypothetical microscopic black holes that we have never observed thus far, but they can exist. From the law, according to the laws of physics, such black holes can certainly be formed. So that is microscopic black holes. If they formed in the very early universe, they would be called, they would also be called primordial black holes. So that's what it is. It's not microbial, but microscopic black holes. 
okay down to earth says the question is about poison mm. poison if poison reaches expiry date will it get more or less poisonous i, I <laughs> poison in expiry dates you know there's a funny thing that you, that you see sometimes you go to a supermarket you want to buy himalayan pink salt so you will get a box a tin whatever of himalayan pink salt mm. on the label it will, it will say this is pure himalayan pink salt it is more than 200 million years old more than 200 million years old and then it will say expiry within 6 months of manufacture does it make any sense something has been around for 200 million years but it's going to expire in the next 6 months or next 12 months so what i'm trying to say is that very often these expiry dates have no meaning when you produce a food product or some other product sometimes or often times by law you are required to give a specific expiry date but that expiry date may just may sometimes just just be for the sake for for name sake you know uh, i remember reading a long time ago some time ago that uh, scientists discovered ancient medications from the 1940s etc you know strips of tablets and all that and they tested them for efficacy and they obviously they had expired decades ago but they were found to work just fine even though they had officially expired so very often these expiry dates don't mean a lot of mean a lot yeah now obviously i am talking about food products and medicines not poisons so it depends i would say certain poisons are chemicals essentially yeah certain chemicals uh have a certain amount of stability and if they come into contact with moisture for instance or or heat they may degrade and their chemical composition may, differ, may 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 change possibly or their efficacy potency may decrease over time so it depends so i don't know if all poisons will become less poisonous after expiry date or e- even if poisons do have expiry dates i'm not sure right potassium cyanide is one of the scariest poisons we know of right one of the most infamous poisons potassium cyanide does it have an expiration date is just kcn right the chemical compound i don't think it expires but does it but does it react with 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 moisture maybe it does maybe it doesn't i'm not quite sure i'm not quite proficient with in chemistry and all that i would say that poisons would eventually depending on what they are made of would over time reduce uh, lose some of its potency let's say you have rat poison or or we spoke about cockroaches cockroach poison uh if you open the wrapper or whatever it comes in and you leave it open for a month maybe it may not work after a month maybe so typically over time the efficacy would decrease but in some cases it it may also not we don't know so yeah it depends on what it is made up of and more or less some of its efficacy efficacy may decrease possibly all right that's about poisons i think i will now take some live chat questions for a few minutes all right do we have any live chat questions if you have any shoot away okay people ask me questions about history about geopolitics about current affairs today is science you have questions about science go for it okay let's someone is saying 
Okay, I am not getting any science questions. I'm getting all kinds of other questions. Saddam Hussein, Chinese spy ship, 24 election. <laughs> Why have you stopped taking live questions? I just took a live question, sir. <laughs> Ask me a question about science. How do we sleep? And there's a question, there's a there's a there's a representation of a sleeping person here. See? You see, where is it? Here, here. Uh, how do we sleep? We sleep with our, with our eyes closed and uh, we fall out of consciousness and we enter a zone, zone or, or a state of altered consciousness, which means that we are not aware of our surroundings, but there's something else going on in our minds. We call it dreaming. And most often, most like in most cases, we tend to forget what we were dreaming. We do remember we had an interesting dream and we wish we could remember it. But mostly, in most cases, we forget our dreams after we wake up. Within within seconds, typically, of waking up. Unless the moment you wake up, you, you put your mind on that, what you were dreaming about. So, uh, that is sleep. It is a state of altered consciousness, of, of unconsciousness, essentially. And uh, there is this phase of REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, and there are various kinds of brain waves associated with different phases of sleep. There are sleep cycles. I think it's 90 minute cycles in which you have a complete sleep cycle and so on. Um, it's not very well understood why we need sleep and so on. Maybe we are consolidating the memories that we form during the daytime. Maybe the brain needs a cerebral spinal, spinal fluid bath to take over the impurities or whatever else. And if you don't sleep enough, you may you may have uh, the formation of amyloid plaque in the brain. You may be more susceptible to dementia and to Alzheimer's disease, etc. These are the things about sleep. Uh, how do we sleep? That's how we sleep. Go lie down, close your eyes, and eventually we'll drift off to sleep if the time is right. That's how it happens. Okay. Anything else? Uh, what are the implications what implications would be the existence of the line of evil in the cosmic microwave background what kind of the possible uses of antimatter provided we can store it I have never heard of any line of evil in the cosmic microwave background never heard of it so yeah I don't know that uses of antimatter you could use antimatter to produce produce energy. You take a bunch of antimatter, you, you mix it with regular matter, it will immediately annihilate itself and give off pure energy in the form of mostly, I would imagine, photons, yeah, and heat and all that. And you could harness that to produce um, for propulsion, for, for like a, a nuclear reactor, for instance. You could use it for weaponry and so on and so forth, yeah. So it is... It could give you pure energy, which you could use in any way or shape or form that you want, if you can store it. That is the ma major problem. The number one problem is how to how to make antimatter. It's very, 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 very hard to make antimatter. Uh, it's the most expensive substance you can imagine. And secondly, how to store it, because it's very hard to store it. Right. And again, people are asking me questions not related to science. I don't understand why they do this. 
how did life start on start on earth it's a major massive mystery a biogenesis right so we don't know but it is believed that because of the conditions of the very early planet a uh, lot of lightning and the mixture of gases that you had and a very wet environment and this entire mixture of 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 factors this combination of factors conspired to brew amino acids that became the precursors of proteins and then somehow this mysterious uh molecule called dna appeared from somewhere and then all of this mixed together to form the first life that's what is thought that's what's believed but we don't quite know for sure how it happened this theory is called abiogenesis the the emergence of life from non living matter okay do we have anything else do we have anything else uh, i've taken many of these questions multiple times um yeah i guess that's it then for now we have crossed two hours so i'm going to end it here thank you very much for all the questions i know there are lots of other questions we'll keep taking them and please look at my older videos and and many of the questions you're asking me i have already been answered but anyway i'm happy to keep answering your questions keep keep the questions coming and we will keep answering them but for today we are done so i will see you in the next episode until then take care and bye bye